disciples at the end of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, you, like them, have been commissioned to go out into the world and make disciples. What is your experience of God leading you into that? I'd like you to think about that this morning. I'm going to tell you uh, perhaps a somewhat of a meandering side story of my own walk with God. It's not a full story, but perhaps how, how God has been at work a little bit in my life, and how this may relate to this mission of going out into the world and making disciples. When I was young, uh, my sisters, uh, two older sisters, and they were involved in a regional youth ministry in the United Church, and they loved it. And so I got to see them. I wasn't yet old enough to go. I got to see them have a great time. And they had a great uh, youth group. Um, the church in that time had invested in them. They had uh, spent money on a regional youth program and pulling youth together from different churches. My parents, actually, in our small church, in the small United Church, called Shaughnessy United Church, um, they learned how to be youth leaders because there was nobody else who was stepping up to be youth leaders. And they took on the challenge of being dedicated to that ministry, often putting in 10 or 15 or sometimes 20 hours a week connecting the youth as volunteers. Well, eventually my parents and I ended up in the Presbyterian Church. And I desperately wanted an experience like my sisters had. And uh, it wasn't until I was about 16 years old, I went to a big youth conference in the States called Triennium. About 7,000 uh, people at that conference, about 5,500 of them between the ages of 15 and 19. So just imagine that. And I had a great time, but what made that experience for me was not having 5,000 or 7,000 youth around me, but one young person that I met, who's just a little bit older than I was, who showed me that church could be fun. Because I had not experienced that. I'd seen my sisters have it, but I had not yet experienced that for myself. Of just having a good time. And having joy. Having fun in God's presence. Does God not want us to be joyful? At 16, I finally learned, yes, he does. From one person who showed me that. Not the 5,001. I came back, and that next uh, September, in 1992, there was a retreat organized for youth for the Presbyterian churches of this area. And um, so I was going to go to that. And, and I decided in my mind, someone has shown me that it's going to be fun. My goal is going to be to help others have a good time with that retreat. And I was very shy. I didn't talk to anyone back then. <laughs> and so I just decided, well, for this weekend, I'm going to change my personality. And I'm going to talk to people. And I'm going to make them have a good time. And then I ended up getting a reputation of being somebody who talked to everybody at these events. So I had to keep that up. And so at school, I didn't talk to a soul. And... And then at church, at these events, I suddenly had to be this person who was always, you know, helping people have a great time. 
So, I don't know, I guess that led somewhere. Um, <laughs> just before that, uh, that event show, I saw something um, that really changed a couple of things for me. My Aunt Christine um, was involved in planning that event, and about five days before that event, I think about six youth were registered to go. And she got on the phone, and she phoned everyone she could possibly think of connected to any kind of Presbyterian church in Winnipeg. And we ended up with somewhere around 25 people at that event. And that event changed my life. Now, I ended up uh, kind of taking the five minutes book, and I learned that in order for youth ministry to work, and I was doing this at age 17 and 18, in order for it to work, you have to do everything in your power to get youth to show up. Because they're not just going to show up. So there were mailings that went out. There were follow-up emails. We even used email back. We back then. There were follow-up phone calls. A lot of phone calls. I made so many phone calls to these youth. In some cases, in some cases, it was going over people's houses and speaking with parents. I went at age 17 and 18 and talked to parents to try to convince them that it's okay to send your kids to the Often it was trying with one youth two, three, ten times, or for years before they actually showed up. I didn't know that I'd been commissioned to go out into the world and make disciples. No one had told me that. Were we doing that? But the ministry actually grew, and I know many people are impacted by that ministry. Some still have a really vibrant faith today, and are trying to live it out of their life. Some are now trying to figure out how to pass that faith on and alive in that time onto their children. And this particular youth ministry impacted me the most in two ways. I met my wife there, and I began to discern a call to ministry there. So I went off to seminary. Went to Knox Presbyterian Church in Selkirk as the minister, and then on to do new church development. And the new church development committee, they had real trouble finding someone to come and do the work. So they ended up asking me, would you apply? I said no at first, and about six months later, they asked again, and I said, well, I'll put my name in, but I'm not sure. And after the interview, I had this confirmation from the Holy Spirit that this was the right thing to do. And when we first started at Trinity Presbyterian Church, we chose two outside missions to support. The first was Winnipeg Inner City Mission, and the second one was some of PWSMD's, Presbyterian World Service and Development's work, some of their work in Malawi. And we started out by simply giving 5% of all of our regular offerings to both missions. And after a few years of operating as a church and uh, dutifully sending our money to these places, God brought a woman from Malawi to our congregation, Victoria. She's actually uh, you, you've met her, uh, Philip and her husband, and uh, Wadi Paso are now here with us, but they're not here today. Um, and uh, Victoria, incidentally, is actually back in Malawi for a month doing um, some research uh, work there. Uh, but we'll come back in July. Um, God brought her to us. So she was studying, and still is studying, at the U of M towards her PhD in food science. And she's, uh, she's working at the University of Malawi in a place called Zama. Now, a group of us connected with the National Church to go and do a mission study tour to Malawi. And it's a study tour that the four of us went on, and we joined with eight others from Ontario. And the tour was really just to gain understanding. Now, before we went, 
Many people ask us, so what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be building the school? Are you going to be putting, building wells? Or, you know, what are you going to be doing? And our, we didn't have a particularly satisfying answer for people because really it was folk were going there with open eyes to see what God might do and um, we're going to learn what's happening there. And so people don't want to fund generally mission trips that don't seem to be doing anything. Um, but, but this is really valuable work. Um, we went, and part of our visit was to Zamba Theological College. Um, and so you'll see up here, that's uh, uh, Todd Statham and Annika Boltz, um, husband and wife, and they have a few kids. Todd is posted as a missionary from the Presbyterian Church in Canada at the college, so he teaches at the seminary there. And the seminary has to have at least two PhDs on faculty or they lose their accreditation. Um, so Canada sent them someone with a PhD so that they could keep their accreditation. Um, and we were sitting, after visiting the college, where some of you have heard this story before, but we were sitting in a classroom uh, with Todd and his wife and one of the other PCC missionaries, uh, Debbie Burns. And uh, somebody asked the question, well, how, how can we help you? How can we support you? And they said, well, we really like encouragement cards. We sometimes feel isolated. And we also really like Doritos. And uh, it's really hard to find Doritos in Zamba. We can sometimes get them if we drive an hour and a half to Blantyre. Um, we can sometimes find Doritos there. Um, but if you can send us Doritos. And Debbie Burns, who was sitting there, she just cut, off, cut him off in the middle of this, this uh, thing he was saying. and said, Todd, this group is really action-oriented. If you've got some secret plan to do something good here at college, now's the time. You need to tell them. And he was taken aback. And he said, well, nobody really wants to fund this because it's not wells and it's not schools and it's not HIV AIDS funding. But our graduates, when they graduate from college and they're going to be ministers out in our churches, they leave here with no money and they leave here with one book in their library, the Bible. And I would just love if every graduate of our college had five or six books that were sort of resource books that could help them. And, and we had been around and seen places in Malawi and seen the influence of pastors, not just in churches, but in local communities, and the role that pastors play in helping people get educated about all kinds of things. The faith, for sure, but also things like understanding the issues around HIV AIDS, understanding the issues around clean drinking water. Pastors can speak on those things and speak directly to the people. And we're sending them out with certainly the Bible, important. But if you see most ministers here and what their libraries look like, and you've got stacks of books. And he said, I know where I buy the books. Like, I've got a cheap supplier out of South Africa. It's all lined up. It wouldn't actually cost that much money, but that's the plan that I would want to do. Now, after the, the, the rest of the group had gone home, the eight had gone home, the four of us stayed, and we stayed to go and visit Victoria's husband, Philman, and his son, Guadacaso, who lived in Zamba, very close to the theological college. So what we did was we got back in touch with Todd and his wife, and we asked, could we come and visit with you? So they had us over at their home, beautiful home. And while they were there, uh, Conrad Schellenberg, who's one of our elders running the marathon today, so not here. Um, he, him and Todd kind of sat together, worked out how much money is this going to take to do this. 
And they worked out some number, but that's not the number that ended up going with. But they, they figured something out. We got back from the trip, and Conrad contacted, uh, and I contacted Ron Wallace, who was the, uh, the person in the Presbyterian Church offices who was in charge of international mission projects, and said, can we do this? And so he was in touch with Todd, so there was lots of emails going around, and Conrad wrote a check, personal check, sent it to the national office and said, here's the money, let's do it. And the project was set up in less than four weeks. Never heard of anything being set up that fast in Presbyterian Church in Canada. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was at our General Assembly, and just as I was leaving, I had my bags and I was just walking out, I got stopped by this, uh, this woman. She said, are you Matthew Brown? I said, yeah. She said, I'm Glynis Williams. And Glynis Williams is the person who took over from Ron Wallace. So she did all the administration. Ron basically set it up in four weeks. And the reason it got set up that fast was because he was re retired two weeks after that. <laughs> so he retired and said, here you go, Glynis, and managed this. So she's been managing it, and she told me, oh, you know, your, your little project. Next month, we're probably going to pass $40,000. We went there two years ago. Now she told me, but it gets to fifty, and they expect maybe by the end of the year it'll get to $50,000. When it gets to fifty, it becomes an endowment. It doesn't need to be a project anymore. No one needs to give any more money to it. Every student that graduates from that college for the next however many years will get between five and seven books every single year when they graduate. These ministers in Malawi are sent to equip the saints for ministry. They're sent with the Great Commission. And we are equipping them to share the gospel in their context, to be better prepared to do so. Now imagine just one of those pastors reading one book, and that book makes a difference to who they reach out to in Christ's name. See, God makes all of this stuff work. We just get to be a part of it. God asks us to participate in it. And in a lot of ways, I've only been peripherally involved in this at all. But, but think about this for a moment. Yes, God can do what God wants to do, but would these pastors have their books without Todd Stephen being appointed there as a missionary? Without Deb Burns in the middle of him talking about Doritos saying, No, Todd, do you have some secret plan here? Without the person who even asked the question in the first place, how can we help you? Would they have their books if Conrad had not sent in the first amount of money to show Ron Wallace that we were even serious about making this happen? What if we hadn't met Victoria and had had no reason to stay in Zomba for a few days? What if we hadn't made the extra effort to go and see Todd and Anna for the second time? Would Todd still got it done? I don't know. Would it have happened so, so quickly? What if we hadn't had people who wanted to go to Malawi on a study tour? What if we hadn't chosen Malawi as a mission focus when Trinity started? What if the new church development committee hadn't found anyone to plant the church? And I just stayed in Selkirk, which was a wonderful church. I loved it there. What if I hadn't responded to a call to ministry at all? What if there hadn't been a group of youth with vibrant faith in the within the Presbyterian Church? What if my aunt hadn't phoned people like Matt a few days before the youth retreat in 1919? What if my parents hadn't volunteered? 
had a church hadn't chosen to invest in youth ministry in the time that they did. I'm not talking about particularly big things here. But look at the ripple effects. And certainly God will use other means. I mean, if we didn't do all those things, God's still going to get things done, right? Certainly God will find a way to accomplish his plans and purposes, but God will always use people to do it. And God wants to use you. And you have no idea the ripple effect that you will have for generations to come. Uh, as part of trying to understand sort of the context of St. Andrew's Church, um, I, I found I was trying to, I was looking through some records and, and started stumbling upon um, some stuff. And, uh, and stumbled upon the St. Andrew's Trust Fund. And uh, we mentioned this last week sort of in the context of, of money. Um, but I started flipping through and reading because it was interesting. I, I don't know why I find that stuff interesting. And I read minutes from a committee that was doing great things. Um, but there was, there was so much good done through this trust fund. And the trust fund was started by when the amalgamation between St. Patel and Norwood Presbyterian Churches happened. And one of the buildings was sold, right? And the money from that was put in the trust fund. And the interest off of that was to be used for different things. So much good was done by that money. So here's, here's just a glimpse, because I obviously have to read everything, because there's lots, I mean, tons of was done. But here's a, a little glimpse. In 1988, trust fund money went to these things. Support for Anishinaabe. They helped Calvin Presbyterian Church with a renovation that they were doing. They helped Kildonan Community Church buy a new piano because they had just gone, they were just gone through a building project. And they didn't have a piano. They applied for, the, for a trust fund and they didn't do that. Manitoba Korean Church was building their building. And the trust fund helped support that building project. Those were the four things the trust fund went to in 1988. That's just one year. I mean, every year it was different things that were, that were helped. Why am I telling you this? It's because this is about making disciples. And it might not seem like it. But this enabled ministry, all of this stuff. And my point in telling you all of this is simply this. Take action for Christ. God will use it. It might be 30 or 50 years later, but when you take steps of faith, when you take steps for God, even in the moments that it may feel like it's failure somehow, God turns things around and uses them for his purposes. Take steps for Christ. The worst thing we can do is do nothing. The Great Commission. It's not just about evangelism. It is about evangelism. We've got to go out there. We've got to tell people about Jesus. We need to do that. It is about that. But it's about way more than that. Go and make disciples of all nations or of all people groups is going to be a better translation. And I think this means bring all your resources to bear. Use every opportunity, whether it's money or gifts or time or effort. It's your actions and it's your words. It's all of it. It's the way you welcome, the way you're hospitable, and it's the way you reach out. The Great Commission is about bringing all of who you are individually and together as a community to bear on making disciples who do what? Obey what Jesus commanded. Now, some people don't particularly like this verse. They don't particularly like the Great Commission. 
Some of it's to go out into the world and we're scared by that. Some of it, though, is this whole idea of we'll make disciples teaching them to obey. We don't like that too much. What are we actually asking people to do? We're asking them to obey what Jesus commanded. And what did Jesus command? It's things like this. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Forgive one another. Lay down your life for others. I mean, those are the things we're asking people to obey. I think we'd be doing great if everyone was obeying those things. This commission is all-encompassing. It involves equipping each other, providing opportunities for children and for youth and for adults of all ages. It involves welcoming the stranger. It involves fellowship. It involves opening that fellowship up to new people. It involves sharing stories of God's activity in your life. It involves making bold decisions as a congregation. It involves getting out into the neighborhood. It involves connecting with people on the other side of the world to support them in their efforts. And in this commission, there is an insistence that Jesus is present. The very end. I'm with you always, the end of the age. We're not alone in this commission. We are sent with Jesus. And this is a reason to act and to speak in the face of fear and how the world or how our friends or how our neighbors might respond. We are sent with Jesus, and Jesus is at work. Jesus is doing more than we are. Never doubt that Jesus is also at work through you. Think about people in your life who do not have a vibrant faith. We know them. People who do not go to church. Think about them. And think about your own relationship with Jesus and how central it is to you. Even if you have never told anyone how central it is to you, I think we all have this, this secret, or maybe some not-so-secret hope that is within us, that we carry around with us, that Jesus really is the Savior. That a walk with Jesus is more wonderful and joyful than we could ever really imagine. We kind of experience it. And then there are people out in the world longing for this something, this secret that they do not know. There are people in our lives missing the very central relationship that they need. And we have got to equip and strengthen each other in this congregation and in other ministries and missions around us, and yes, even in southern Africa or wherever it might be. We have got to equip one another to be about this commission to those others who do not know. Let me tell you one last story. While I was at General Assembly, I sat next to, uh, for pretty much every part of it, a woman named Carol Crawford. Uh, she's from uh, Vancouver, uh, is an elder in her church. And I got talking to her, and kind of, she kind of shared with me her story. And I was fascinated by her story. It was a very simple uh, story of faith. She's a very practical lady. And um, very matter of fact, down to her, and kind of funny too. So I enjoyed sitting next to her. She made funny little comments during General Assembly all the time. She's in her mid 70s. And, uh, and so I said, Carol, can I? Is it okay if I share your story when I go home with my congregation? And she said, uh, Sure, would you like me to email it to you? Because I have it written out. <laughs> okay, sure. And she did. So she emailed me. Story. So, 
So here, in her own words, is what uh, basically she told her congregation back in 2008. And then I'll fill in a little bit uh, maybe after So this is Carol's own words. I remember very well the time and place when I first heard about St. Amy's. That's the name of her congregation. It was Saturday night. March 4th, 2006, and my husband Charles and I were having dinner with friends at an Italian restaurant downtown before going to the opera at the Queenie. One of our friends, Kathy, mentioned during dinner that she was going to be playing the organ next morning at a Presbyterian church in New Westminster. I asked where it was located because I knew of Knox Presbyterian on East Columbia, but Kathy told us it wasn't that one. It's called St. Abe's, and she gave the location which turned out to be up the hill, not very far from where we lived. I had never heard of St. Aidan's before, and I was somewhat curious. So I half-seriously asked if we should attend the service the next morning, primarily to hear Kathy play. Oh, I should tell you, incidentally, I was a student at St. Aidan's Church for about a year and a half. So this is why we always got into this conversation. So she, she uh, suggests we'll go and hear you play. Kathy immediately said, no, you'll make me nervous. <laughs> to be honest, I also had a bit of an ulterior motive in that it occurred to me that it would be a good opportunity to see what the church and the minister were like, because I had been vaguely thinking off and on for some time about returning to church after an absence of many years. Would you believe 50 years? But haven't actually done anything about it for 50 years. I didn't press it that evening, but I did ask if Kathy thought the order of service would be similar to that of the United Church, which is the church of my background. So, you know, she's still thinking, well, it's been 50 years. Is it still kind of like it was, you know, when I went to church? I didn't know much about the Presbyterian Church. She said yes, it was pretty similar. I left it at that and we went off to enjoy the opera. On the way home, I asked Charles what he thought about going to the service the next morning. He was entirely agreeable, so we decided to ignore Kathy's wishes and go to church for the first time in many, many years. I immediately liked the look of St. Aidan's even before we went in a small church in an older neighborhood, but with a very solid appearance that made me think it had not only stood the test of time, but was going to be there for a good while yet. We were welcomed very warmly and found our way to a pew. I was relieved to see that the sanctuary looked much like what I had been used to, i.e. not too ornate or fancy, just good old plain Protestant style. <laughs> I looked at the bulletin and saw that the order of service seemed very familiar also. Then when Pastor Bruce McCannis Davis took the pulpit and began the service, I felt like I'd come home. Our first visit to St. Amos was such a positive experience that we decided to keep on attending. And that is why we've been doing that for two years now. No, this was written in 2008. We've made many new wonderful friends among the congregation, and we've enjoyed some of the wonderful dinners put on by the Cairo Fellowship Group. And we've even begun doing our small part for some of the fundraising efforts. By coming that first morning, I had somehow stumbled onto something that I had been missing in my life, of which I had only been dimly aware at the time. Was it divine intervention that led me there? I think so. And I'm very thankful. Beautiful words from this woman.
Now, what I'm struck by is she started going there. She's now in her mid-70s. She's away for 50 years, and she was an elder sitting next to me at General Assembly. Did she come to church and think, well, I just want to, you know, I want to get involved, and I want to become an elder, and I want to serve, and I want to go out there with the Great Commission and, and do all that? No, she didn't think any of that, did she? But God was working within her all those 50 years while she was away. And now she's serving. It was not too late for her. Don't think that your friends or your family members, well, you know, they don't go to church and they used to go when they were a kid, but that was 40 years ago. Or that was five years ago. 50 years this woman was away. And, and don't think that God cannot use your poor attempts at evangelism, God uses an organist who says, please don't come to church <laughs> to bring someone to church. You can probably do better than that. <laughs> we all have been given this condition. And it's not that we are people. It's that Christ is capable. And he uses the meter for his living. 